right, turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3 can be found on page 981 in the Pew Bible. 981 in the Pew Bible. We'll be focusing on 3, 12 through 16, but I'm going to read starting in verse 7 to give us some context. Philippians 3, starting in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that you would open up our hearts and minds to receive your word that your spirit would work in such a way that transforms us, convicts us of sin, and leads us to press on in Christ-likeness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As schools get closer to the end of the year, and as students begin to see the end in sight, and seniors begin to sense that graduation is right around the corner, a couple of tendencies can take place. Senioritis can kick in, They sense the end, and and it it results in no motivation, no effort. They become lazy. They skip classes. They just don't care. And then their grades suffer because of it. But other students, knowing that they haven't arrived, finish strong. I had a conversation recently with a student about this. He's getting good grades right now. And he only has one month left. He's almost there. He's only got one month left. And he wants to maintain these good grades. And to do so, he knows that he must keep pressing on to reach the goal that he has set out to achieve. In a similar way, through Paul's example, we are encouraged to press on in the Christian life. As believers in Jesus Christ, by God's grace, We are to continue to grow in Christ's likeness and press on to Christian maturity. There are three truths in our text that that can help us and enable us to press on in Christian maturity. First, to press on to Christian maturity, we must acknowledge that we have not arrived and are not perfect. We must acknowledge that we have not arrived and are not perfect. Spiritual growth Pressing on to Christian maturity begins with the acknowledgement that we have not arrived. So look with me at 
verses 10 through 12. Again, starting in verse 10 to get, get the context. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. We saw the last couple of weeks that, that Paul had warned the church against false teachers. They were putting their confidence in what they do and not in Christ. And we saw Paul glory in Christ Jesus by counting everything as loss, everything as rubbish compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And Paul's desire is to gain Christ and be found in him. Paul's desire is to know Christ fully, that he might attain the resurrection from the dead. And it's in this context in which Paul continues to share his story. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. So Paul is referring to the fact that he has not obtained the resurrection from the dead or perfection, which will only come when he is with Christ. He recognizes that he has not arrived at his final destination. It takes a humble mindset to acknowledge where we are at, to acknowledge our sins, our imperfections, our failures. And as long as we live on this earth, in these sinful bodies, we will not be perfect. We will continue to sin. James 3.1, we all stumble in many ways. With Paul's example, we see our ongoing need then for God's mercy. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. You see, Paul's reminder here of his own need for growth protects us against pride and self-righteousness or any claims of being super spiritual. If there were ever, if, if there were ever a person that we would think would obtain perfection, it would have been the Apostle Paul. And so Paul's testimony also protects us from, from a false teaching then that would lead to complacency. There was a false teaching in that day that stated that the resurrection had already happened. It was already in the past. 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 18, and then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The idea would be that the resurrection is already in the past, that you can be perfect, that you can have all the blessings of heaven in your present experience. A life free from sin and suffering. We hear something similar today. Similar false teaching today. And it seems like Paul is refuting a misunderstanding in the church that thought that a person could reach perfection and claim sinlessness. And therefore live as though heaven was your present experience or should be your present experience. And we know that John would refute this in 1 John 1. He observed that the Christian life involves ongoing acknowledgement, confession. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's what Paul observes here as well. He has not arrived. 
the Christian life involves not only sharing in the sufferings of Christ, but also an ongoing fight against sin. So Paul says he has not obtained it. Perfection cannot be expected in this life, and there will always be room for progress and growth. Not being satisfied with where you're at and whatever it is that you seek, and acknowledging that you have room to grow and whatever you set out to achieve is essential for pressing on. It's essential for pressing on in Christian maturity. Now think about this. Think about this for a moment. When a person believes that they have achieved or arrived at their goal, what happens? They don't seek to improve. I see this a lot in sports with athletes, right? As an old baseball and softball instructor. When a child tells me, I already know how to hit a baseball. I already know how to hit. What happens? No need to improve. No need for further instruction. They become stagnant and complacent. It reminds me, I was at a baseball conference in 2003. Tony Gwynn, one of the best hitters I think that ever lived, he said he hit 100 balls every single day off the tee to improve. He hadn't arrived. He's in the major leagues. He was going to be in the Hall of Fame. In the story of the tortoise and the hare, the hare thought that he had the race won before it even begun. Had even begun. What happens? Pride becomes evident, and he takes a nap, falls asleep, and he loses. He loses. Those who humbly acknowledge that they don't have it all figured out, haven't arrived at that final destination, are the ones who are more eager to press on and grow. So also it is in the Christian life. Those who humbly admit their flaws and their failures and their sins are those who are in a good place to grow spiritually. In fact, one sign of spiritual maturity and spiritual growth is an ever-increasing awareness of one's sins. Does that mean then that we can remain in it? Of course not. No. Paul will tell Timothy in 1 Timothy to immerse himself in the word, to watch his life and his teaching, and to persist in these things, and here's why, so that all may see your progress. There should be evidence of spiritual growth and progress in our daily lives. Like a child learning to walk to their mom or dad, right? You picture this with a one-year-old child, maybe nine months old or almost two years old. They're beginning to walk to their parents, right? The parent puts their arms out. They begin to start to walk towards them. They crawl. They stagger. They stumble. They fall. And then they get back up again. And then they keep going. They keep going. And that's what Paul continues to do. He's a pilgrim on a journey, striving to make progress, and he's calling others to join him in it. The last part of verse 12. 
but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So after acknowledging that he has not arrived, he's not perfect, what does he resolve to do? I press on to make it my own. Paul doesn't give up. Instead, he presses on to take hold of the eternal life to which he has been called, which means that Paul is in a passionate pursuit of seizing it, of of taking hold of it. He's like a, a hunter chasing after large game. The idea, the idea is, is of pressing on could be described in, in, as an army in pursuit of, the, of a retreating enemy until they finally seize it, they take hold of it. So it's a military term. It's also a, a, an athletic term, and we're going to see that again in verses 13 and 14. The idea is there's an ongoing, strenuous pursuit that will not be denied until you finally have it in your grip. He's not earning it or working for it. Rather, he is working out his salvation because God is at work in him. That's the idea. He seeks to make it his own. Why? Because Christ Jesus made me his own. Paul is in this all-out pursuit of of seizing Christ, of seizing that final goal of the resurrection, of being with Jesus because Christ has already seized him. Christ has grabbed onto him. Christ has taken hold of him. And Paul, what Paul is doing here, he's reflecting back on his uh, conversion experience in, in Acts 9. He's on the road to Damascus where Christ made him his own. In Acts 9, Paul, formerly known as Saul, was traveling along and he approached Damascus when suddenly, here's what the text says in Acts 9, a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. And then there's a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, who is to go to Saul, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. After this experience, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he's baptized, and then he immediately proclaims Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Christ Jesus took hold of him. Christ captured him and rescued him from the road to destruction. He snatched him out of the fire. He pulled him out of the snare of the devil. Paul had a change in understanding of who Jesus is. And it led to a new direction, a new purpose, and a reorientation of his life. He now longs to gain Christ and reach that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of him. This is our conversion story. This can be your conversion story if you're not a believer here this morning. We point people to God's work. He pursued us. His love for us. We love because he first loved us. I was wandering 
I was following after the things of this world, sought to be right with God on the basis of what I do, on my good works. But then Jesus seized me. He rescued me from my sins. By dying on the cross in my place, he bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. So I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone and not in what I do. Christ gave me a new direction, a new purpose, a new outlook on life. So I lay hold of him and seek to know him better. And though I continue to sin and am not perfect, I press on to know Christ better. Right? That, that's our story. If you could summarize our story, that's our story. That can be your story if you repent of your sins and turn to Jesus Christ alone for salvation. So if you have been seized by Christ, if Christ has made you his own, then pursue him. Press on to Christian maturity. Keep believing in him. Keep trusting in him. Confess that you have not arrived and are not perfect and commit to take hold of Jesus. Let's not be complacent or stagnant in our walk with the Lord. Second, second to press on to, to Christian maturity, we must forget what is behind and strain toward the goal. So look now, notice verses 13 and 14. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Pressing on to Christian maturity involves pursuing the goal of the prize like an athlete by forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what is ahead. I recall my days as a cross-country runner in high school. The great experience that that was for me and the determination and focus in, in this pursuit and what it all involved. My dad made me run because it would keep me in shape for baseball. But I actually enjoyed running. I came to enjoy the race especially. And I enjoyed the competition, the preparation, the discipline that was involved in it. It, it was so much more of a mental game than I realized Right, but, but it came with its challenges, especially when you're competitive. This wasn't just go on out there and have a nice, fun jog with a lot of other people. It's not what you do, and at least that's not my take on cross-country. Well, there, there was some very competitive, and there, there was one runner on our team. She had a tendency to constantly look over her shoulder when she ran. Right? She'd run, and she'd constantly look back, constantly look back. We tried to encourage her. We tried to remind her that it's slowing you down. She was a pretty good runner. She was young. She was, she was pretty good. She could have been so much better, but she just kept looking back. And she wasn't focused on what was in front of her. She wasn't focused on the finish line. She was more focused on the circumstances that were around her. In, in a similar way, as Paul continues to repeat himself here, he does so in a more personal way. Brothers. And then he, he draws our attention to the imagery of running a race. 
He basically says again, brothers, I have not arrived. I have not made it my own. But one thing, one thing I do. He has one primary passion, one pursuit, one focus. And then he describes the runner in the race. He says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. To make progress in the Christian life, we need to forget what is behind us. The runner in the race shouldn't look back. Every glance that they do and take of looking back can cause them to lose focus. We see this not just with runners, but any person who's been successful in a job, right? whether they've won championships with athletes, they've won championships, or you've won awards of some sort, they might begin to rely upon their past accomplishments. The best ones, the ones that likely make the most progress in their profession, seem to be the ones that have a short-term memory. Have you noticed that? They don't look at their past successes. They don't live in their past successes or achievements or even in their past failures. They learn lessons from it. Their focus is on what's in front of them. Otherwise, they become complacent or indifferent. You think of Think of someone who wins a championship. If they're focused still on what they did last year, they're not focused on what's in front of them, and they become content and complacent in that. In a similar way, that's what what Paul is getting at here when he says, forgetting what lies behind. To forget what lies behind does not mean that Paul couldn't recall anything from the past, as though it's erased from his memory. We've already seen in this letter that he recalled his former life in Judaism, right? In three, four and following. He could tell you all about his former life. He knows what he taught the Philippians, right? He, he says, to write the same things to you. Well, I know what I've written before. I know what I've told you before. He also knows that he's gone through what he's gone through as a follower of Christ in 2 Corinthians 11. So he knows his past, his imprisonments, his countless beatings, his three times beaten with rods, once stoned, shipwrecked, sleepless nights without food. So he, he remembers those things in the past. So, so what does this mean, forgetting what lies behind? The word forget in the Bible is not just simply to erase or wipe out from the mind. It, it's the opposite of, of remembering. It's the opposite of remembering. One, one writer says the word remember as a biblical term, carries with it the meaning of recalling from the past. So we recall from the past into the presence of an action which lies buried in history in such a way that the result of the past action is made potently present. In other words, Paul will not regard the past as having any bearing or influence upon his present spiritual outlook or conduct. Paul's past failures, his past successes, his privileges as a Jew, his his achievements, his accomplishments as a Christian will not be relied upon. He will not look back at those things 
that would lead him to complacency or that would paralyze him from making progress in the Christian life. I've heard it illustrated like this recently. In Micah 7.19, it says that you, God, will cast all our sins, hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. And Jerry Bridges observed, he doesn't just drop them over the side or even pitch them overboard. He hurls them as something to be rid of. He hurls our sins overboard. Corey Tenboom used to say, and then God put a sign saying, no fishing allowed. Why would she say that? Because she knew that we tend to drag up our old sins, that we tend to live under a vague sense of guilt. And this can paralyze us from pressing on. Forget what lies behind. No fishing allowed. And strain forward to what lies ahead. Again, the imagery of this runner. He sees the finish line. He's straining. His eyes are fixed on the goal. His arms are pumping. His legs are churning and burning. His chest is pounding. His side is aching. His eyes are watering. The sweat is flowing. And he he reaches out. He reaches out for the goal. And then he gets there and he collapses. (laughs) He is dedicated and determined to get there. What's the goal? What's the goal? Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The goal is the heavenward call of God in Christ. It is associated with the resurrection and with heaven and and being with Jesus. That's the reward. The prize is knowing Christ fully and, and gaining him. Here's what we can learn from Paul's example. If you want to make progress in the Christian life and grow in spiritual maturity, then forget what is behind and strain forward to what is ahead. Strain toward the goal of Christ, of being with him. No matter how many times you fall, no matter how many times you fail, and fall short and sin against God, no matter how many times you look away from Christ and at your circumstances, right, in the storms of life, like Peter did as he's walking in the water toward Jesus, he looks away, looks at his circumstances, and then you fall. Depend on Jesus. He still cried out, Lord, save me. Like the runner in the race, get back up and keep going. Don't focus, in fact, don't even focus on your ability to run. Don't focus on your failures or your accomplishments. Keep looking to Jesus. Third and finally, to press on to Christian maturity, we must be unified in our pursuit of Christ and hold fast to what we have learned to be true. So look with me now at verses 15 and 16. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have 
attained. Paul now moves from his own pursuit and striving to encourage the believers. He calls the church to be united. That those who are mature, and we should all seek to be, right? All those in the church of Philippi should seek after being mature. They're to think the same way as Paul on these matters. The church is to be unified, to be of one accord, to have the same mind and take the same view as Paul. And specifically, Paul has in mind this pursuit of Christ and what he has just explained. And he wants them to join in imitating him in verse 17. It's the call to know Christ, to, to look forward to the resurrection and being with Christ. The church is to press on to the goal and be united in having a Christ-centered ambition. Paul wants them to focus on what is significant and to move forward in unity, recognizing that there might be differences of opinion in peripheral things. So Paul is not being arrogant and stating, if, any, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. He's not, also, he's not stating that it doesn't matter what you believe. He's not stating that either. He, he's exhorting the church to, he, he's exhorting them already to watch out for the, the false teachers. Watch out for those who would lead you astray. Paul believed that, that God would bring to a knowledge, bring people to a knowledge of the truth, that the Spirit of God works in the lives of believers, doesn't he? He works in our lives. He convicts us of sin. He convicts us of what we believe, and he reveals flaws that we have in our understanding. And Paul included, right? None of us have it figured out. Paul didn't have it figured out. I think, I think this is fascinating. Have you thought about this closely? The point he's making is fascinating. How do you respond if someone thinks differently than you? And they're genuine believers seeking to grow in their relationship with the Lord. He doesn't force them to his view. He doesn't intimidate them. He stated his case. He encourages them. He knows none of us have it figured out. And he says, God will teach you. God will instruct you on these matters. He's patient with them. And if there are additional peripheral things less significant that we disagree on, God will lead us and teach us on those matters as well. Now, Paul doesn't say how this happens. Perhaps it's the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts. Perhaps through conviction. Perhaps through the words from other believers. Perhaps through prayer and the study of God's Word. God can use all these things to speak to us. Paul's desire is unity. And focusing on what's most significant, and that's marching forward together in our pursuit of Christ. And then in verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul exhorts them to remain steadfast, to keep making progress. What they had achieved at this point was to guide them in their walk as a church. What they had learned to be true, they were to implement in their daily lives. They were to continue in the faith, 
and not give in to their opponents. And what a word of application for us. What you know to be true, implement that in your life. Don't depart from the progress that you have made in your pursuit of Jesus Christ. Imagine you're on an escalator. And it's moving up towards your destination. Don't turn around and try to walk back down the stairs. Press on to Christian maturity. Now, as we conclude, I have some final questions and comments that we can ask that can help us evaluate what we have attained so that we continue to make progress in our race to the finish line. First, ask yourself, am I characterized by making progress in the Christian life? Is there visible evidence that I'm making progress? Am I holding on to my past failures Are they weighing me down? Am I holding on to my past accomplishments and relying upon those things to be right with God? Am I relying upon how well I'm running the race and what a good runner I am? Am I focused on peripheral issues? or my circumstances that are around me? Or am I trusting in Christ, depending upon him and looking to him? Maybe you're young in the faith. You're zealous, you have a lot of energy. Let your passion be single. Pursue one thing. Pursue Jesus Christ. One thing I do, Paul says. So strain toward that goal. Don't wait until you get older in life to make Jesus your pursuit. Don't wait until you're older in life to get involved in ministry or in a local church. Right? Even as I think of graduates, as they go on to college and afterwards and to their jobs or even to their jobs and no college, get involved in a church, students. Live for Christ now. Serve him now. Perhaps you're older in life or you're older in the faith and you feel like the finish line is closer. I'm almost there. Pray that God would give you strength to keep pursuing Christ. Even if it means limping to the finish line. Keep making progress. Don't settle for being done when you're on the last leg of the race. You only have 100 meters left. Find ways to help those who are younger in the faith join in imitating you. May we all run well. Let us lay aside every weight which, and sin which clings so closely 
and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes upon Jesus. And when we do this as a church, we are pressing on to Christian maturity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks this morning that Christ Jesus has taken hold of us. He has rescued us from our sins. He's granted us full forgiveness of sins because of his death on the cross. I pray that you would help each of us here press on, that we would strive towards Christ's likeness because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, that we would pursue him, that we would seek after him, that our eyes would be not fixed on our circumstances but upon Jesus Christ. And we will give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.